Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in for episode eight of Chiefs of Station. And today I have Eric Vento joining us to discuss uh, a few topics related to networking, um, working from home, and his experience transitioning from law enforcement into private sector. Uh, Eric is well known on social media. He's quite active. Um, I am also uh, here with uh, Rafael Cabrera, who was uh, in one of our previous episodes and is joining us as Chief of Station today on behalf of Pilani. Uh, but without any further ado, uh, I want to welcome you, Eric. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to discuss uh, these uh, different topics with us today. Um, and I will give you the floor if you can make an introduction and, and then we will start with uh, uh, different topics. Yeah, thanks, Ephraim. I'm, I'm happy to be here and thank you for using this platform to pay it forward and to share information with others. It's a great benefit to, to many people I know. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Eric Vento. <clears throat> As Ephraim stated, my background is 10 years in law enforcement at the local, state, and federal level in the U.S. And then I have approximately four to five years of corporate security experience and a number of different organizations. Most recently, I worked for a major tech firm and I work in the supply chain security space. I'm happy to be here. I love to help others both transition out of law enforcement, but also find success in whatever they may be doing. Great. So one of the things that I want to start uh, uh, discussing about is what was your experience transitioning from law enforcement into uh, the private sector sphere? Um, did you uh, see that you had a lot of opportunities available? I know that some of these job postings are more tailored with uh, individuals that have either law enforcement or military backgrounds, and obviously the, the, the stereotypical people, people with IC backgrounds, but what was your experience uh, when making that switch? Um, it was difficult, to be honest. You know, I did not transition voluntarily. You know, I had expected to be in law enforcement for the rest of my career and things didn't work out that way. And so I was kind of thrust into the corporate sector and I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea that the private sector is primarily built on networking. I had no idea of the jobs that were available, how to interpret the job titles, what salary and total compensation meant you know, how to negotiate salary, how to talk to recruiters, how to find hiring managers. I literally had no idea. I was just stumbling around in the dark looking for the light switch, you know, and it wasn't until <clears throat> I was introduced to a couple of people on LinkedIn, like Scott Walker, like Brian Tuscan, like Andre Lelend, and we were able to have very candid conversations about what it was like to transition to the private sector from the public sector what was required. And that really opened my eyes to how to build the foundation of transitioning, what steps to put in place, what building blocks to put in place, so to speak. But what I, what I really realized was more than anything, it was a mindset change, you know, and whether you're forced into it, whether you leave law enforcement voluntarily, whether you retire and are looking for something different, it doesn't matter why you left, it's still a mindset change. You still have to take yourself out of your previous role, that law enforcement culture, the language, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of family that you have. And you have to put yourself in the corporate world where a lot of that just doesn't exist. 
you know, and you have to realize, okay, I'm here to take care of my family. I'm here to take care of myself. And there are certain things about law enforcement that I'm probably just not going to have anymore. And that can be a bit of a, uh, a gut punch, you know, and that can take some time to really understand and process. And for me, it took several years, you know, it took several years for me to finally accept my role and that I was not in law enforcement anymore and that I was 100% devoted to the corporate sector. You know, so the transition from law enforcement to the private sector, I would say is comprehensive, it's intense. And regardless of your circumstances, it takes a lot of work to make it work. What about uh, in terms of transitioning from that law enforcement culture? and adapting to corporate culture. Obviously, different industries, different companies have different cultures, but that corporate culture in general, um, how different was it? And uh, did you struggle? Was it something just rather strange because of uh, maybe less limitations, less protocols that you needed to follow? Yeah, I, I struggled significantly, to be quite honest. Um, you know, when you walk into law enforcement, everyone's roles are clearly defined, you know, and you know, from working with people on a daily basis that, hey, this person can walk through fire with me. This person has my back. I trust this person with my life. We do everything together. We train together. We run calls together. We conduct investigations together. We, law enforcement has its own language. They have their own sense of family because of the dynamics of the profession, the um, the danger involved and the people willing to run toward gunfire rather than away from it, you know, and that that really develops a sense of camaraderie that is similar to the military in a lot of aspects. And to transition from that environment where the level of trust is so high among coworkers to the corporate environment where it really doesn't exist, you know, to, to a large degree that it does in law enforcement, you could be working with a group of college students who just graduated. You know, you could be working with people who hate the police. You know, there's a whole myriad of different things that may impact your experience. And you just have to realize, okay, I can't act and I can't think and I can't speak the way I would in law enforcement. You know, and I think of one example that happened in my first foray in the corporate sector was I I joked around like I would in law enforcement and that joke was overheard by someone and I got in trouble for it. You know, nothing, nothing major, but I got my hand slapped and said, Hey, you can't say that stuff anymore. You know, there was nothing wrong with it, but it was the perception of how it came across, you know, and thankfully my boss at the time was a former federal law enforcement agent. And he was able to really speak to me and say, Hey, I understand the transition is tough. I went through the same thing myself, but you really have to consider what you say and how you say it and what impact it may have on people who don't have that same experience and don't have that same perspective. You know, and so that was my first like gut punch, so to speak of, okay, I really have to be careful, you know? And from that point on, I've been really careful on how I phrase things and how I talk and the mannerisms in which I speak and my body language and how I, what my perception is for other people, because it does matter, you know, and 
Yeah. So I, again, coming back to your original question, my, my transition and the struggle between the law enforcement culture to the corporate culture was, was intense. How do you see the nature of the job from going from boots on the ground? I may say that to like being in the office and doing um, a different type of work. Yeah. Um, you know, initially, when I didn't have any perspective or didn't have any context, I was bored, you know, and I was, I was, I was a little angry at the same time because the corporate sector approaches risk and liability way differently than law enforcement does, you know, and it's two separate, totally different competing priorities, you know, and, you know, law enforcement is focused on arrest and prosecution, sometimes restitu restitution if it calls for it, but there's very much a checks and balances and there's prosecution and there's laws and there's punishment for, for the breaking of those laws. And the corporate sector has any number of different levers from which they can choose to pull. They could terminate the employee. They could seek restitution. In some cases, they may prosecute depending on the level of severity, but it's it's completely up to the company and the company measures risk and liability differently than the public sector does. And so that was a big adjustment for me was I no longer had the same priorities and my organization no longer has the same priorities as, as I'm used to, you know, so training, retraining my mindset to think about risk and liability from a business point of view, rather than a law enforcement point of view, was something that took some time. Speaking of training, did you have any training or did you receive any training that helped you uh, prepare for a private sector job or maybe develop yourself once you were already uh, in a private sector role? To be honest, not really. Um, kind of hard to find one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the, the law enforcement in general does a terrible job of preparing people for life after law enforcement. I mean, they put on classes for retirees that usually go over finances, maybe a little mental health sprinkled in, but in terms of transitioning to another job, the opportunity for, for training and the opportunity for collaboration is few and far between, if not non-existent. You know, they are, you are basically thrust into this new career field and told go forth and prosper, you know, and, uh, and that's one thing that that we are trying to change. No, uh, that's definitely extremely important. One thing that you mentioned uh, truly resonates uh, and echoes something that uh, uh, Rafael said during his podcast. That, well, from his perspective, we were discussing about people transitioning from intelligence in Latin America into these private sector roles, and he said, like, you will always miss government work, or, you know, in this case, law enforcement, and it really resonated. I don't know if you want to chip in, uh, Rafan, and say something uh, regarding that, but uh, it, it is very obvious that the nature of the job, um, when compared to something like law enforcement, uh, if you've been a long-term military, member of the military, or you have been in the IC, uh, it may be seen as a bit diluted <laughs> when it comes to responsibilities. And I have seen people that have gone back to government. Uh, they've, they've been in private sector for three or four years, and then they've decided to go back because they just they couldn't get used to it. So I, I, I definitely understand that point, not from a first-hand experience, but from seeing other people uh, uh, within my, my immediate teams uh, do that. So um, 
But uh, let's talk about networking right now, right? Uh, reaching out to people like Andy Lalinde, who was my first boss. He was actually the one that gave me uh, the opportunity to, to actually start working in intelligence in the private sector. Um, and it was all through network. If it wasn't from one of my professors um, that taught me at Brunel University, who sent me that job vacancy from Andy, I probably wouldn't be talking to you right now. <laughs> uh, but um, it's strange. Nowadays, a lot of people are branching into LinkedIn. Some people don't really know how to properly do networking. And it, it's not really an exact science. It's more of an art. You need to have people skills. And, but this feels a little bit more detached because it's on a social media platform. So from your experience, and you have a very solid footprint, you share a lot of great content for um, the security community. How do you approach networking on a professional social media platform? That is a really broad question that I will attempt to answer in the time that we have. But um, the one, one thing I wanna just say right off the bat is we compare LinkedIn and Facebook. On Facebook, most people would not send a friend request to someone that they don't know. You know, that's just not how it's done. It's more of a, this is my actual friend network. Now, of course, those outliers, but we're not going to, th that doesn't matter in this, in this particular situation. On LinkedIn, LinkedIn is specifically made for networking, for building relationships, for expanding your professional circle of contacts and connections. Notice I didn't say friends. I'm talking about connections you know, which is something completely different. A connection may grow into a friendship, but it is not, does not equal a friendship right off the bat. You know, so LinkedIn, the people who are on the platform, they are on there to connect. They are on their network. They are on there to have a relationship with people in their similar career fields and to hopefully build a diverse network of people who can contribute worthwhile content to their everyday life. You know, so when I talk to people about how to approach networking, I tell them, don't just focus on your own specific area of expertise. Focus on everyone who, who can give worthwhile and valuable content to your feed. You know, people who will encourage you, people who will post leadership quotes that you can emulate, people who are not only deeply involved in your area of expertise and your area of interest, but maybe some of the outlying areas as well. You know, so when I tell people to create a LinkedIn profile, that's a whole different, whole different story. But the first thing you should do is start to connect with people at your company. You know, start to connect with other people that you know at other companies who are in similar career fields, other intelligence analysts, other law enforcement, et cetera. And then start branching out from there. You know, start looking at, you know, okay, who works for Xerox, who works for Microsoft, who works for Facebook, who works for Twitter in this capacity, start branching out to those people and then start branching out from there. Because every network that you add to your own individual network is like a Venn diagram. You know, if you have 500 connections on LinkedIn that you um, have connected with, and then you add another 500 more, that's doubling your network. You know, and what I always recommend is if you see someone on LinkedIn that you'd like to connect with because they have a good background, 
maybe they, they have a nice smile and you just you're like, hey, that guy looks really friendly. I want to connect with him. Or he's posting a lot of great content that you are following, that you like on a consistent basis. Always include a personal note when you connect with people. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't refuse hardly anybody unless, you know, it's spam or an obvious bot or something like that. But when I have a personalized message, a company, that connection, it's like, okay, this is a guy that automatically gets it. I can build a connection with him. And that's how a lot of relationships start. You know, um, most of the people that I call my friends were built from LinkedIn connections. They were built from a connection request that translated to a phone call, that translated to a video chat, to maybe meeting them in person at a conference. And now we benchmark and we share industry knowledge and talk about each other's families in a personal sense. I mean, some of my most closely held relationships have come from intentionally networking on LinkedIn. You know, um, it is professional, but it can also be personal as well. And LinkedIn is, it's a force multiplier. You know, um, I could spend easily a couple hours sharing my screen, showing you how I job search, how I network, how I figure out who the recruiters are, who the hiring managers are for certain roles and how I approach them. You know, this is, this is your window into the hiring process. You know, instead of just seeing an application on Indeed or LinkedIn and blindly applying for it, along with 10,000 other people, LinkedIn is your way to either find out who the hiring manager is, find out who the recruiter is. Maybe you know someone who knows someone at the company who can put your resume on the hiring manager's desk. Maybe you're connected with someone there who can give you an internal referral. LinkedIn is your force multiplier to getting a job and getting the job that you want. Because without it, you're just basically throwing your hat in the ring along with everyone else and hoping that your resume somehow makes it to the pile that's being reviewed. You know, so networking for me has gone, has transitioned, you know, quote unquote, from purely a professional sense of getting a job, maintaining a job, professional development to this is how I build my relationship of friends. You know, this is how I build not only my relationships with people who are like-minded and like-minded security practitioners, but a lot of the people that I initially reached out to or who initially reached out to me during my transition, I now have a ongoing friendship with them. You know, I have mentoring with them. I mentor others as well. And so LinkedIn has been has been a big blessing for me, both in the personal, but also in the professional sense. It is uh, worth highlighting though, that uh, some people that are new to LinkedIn, um, and I'm referring mostly to their recent graduates. Those are about to enter the workforce. They really don't, don't understand. Uh, and if they do, maybe they're a little bit afraid of reaching out to people. Sure. You know, that, that, that fear factor, that the fear of rejection, um, they, they don't realize, as you say, that you have better, uh, better chances of having your resume and your cover letter arrive at the top pile. Maybe you're not going to be selected, but at least you're being taken into consideration rather than right. just applying blindly and hoping that uh, whatever mechanism they use, they pick up the keywords that you had on your, on your resume. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I answer that question all the time from people. And the number one answer that I give them is you're not losing anything by messaging these people. Mm-hmm. You're not losing anything at all by saying, hey, so-and-so, I just graduated from college and I know you're really active in my hometown and I'd love to get a job with you. Or even I'd love to have an informational interview with you to learn more about the company and learn more about the role. Are you interested? The worst thing they can do is say no or not respond. And that in either of those cases, you haven't lost anything. You know, you haven't lost anything whatsoever. But if they do respond, if they do say, man, thank you so much. I'd love to chat with you or I'm going to refer you to so-and-so. They'd love to answer your questions. Maybe that's a foot in the door for you for possible employment. Maybe it's, if not now, then down the road. And even if it doesn't materialize, you've built a relationship with that company because of your proactiveness. Exactly. And sometimes the, the people who is promoting these uh, new positions, they are expecting that kind of reaction like that. People who have the, the, the purpose to say, hey, I want to know more about this position. I want to know more. I, I want to stay in touch with you. And this, uh, this behavior is sometimes is, is very uh, profitable for, for many people using LinkedIn. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Right. Um, uh, what about um, benchmarking? So that, that's another side of reaching out throughout your network, aside from asking for job opportunities, but benchmarking. I know that in, in the corporate security sphere, it's, it's very big. I usually see people asking, well, what do you guys do in this case? I don't know when it comes to GSOC or, or what have you, uh, exchanging best practices. Um, some people are rather inexperienced. And do you have uh, any sort of advice to them when it comes to how to benchmark? They, with, within our field, it may be a little bit sensitive sometimes because some of these sure. things may, may be, you know, the proprietary. You, you may not sure. be able to share them. So people are extra cautious. So what I, what I recommend people do is, is actually multi-tiered. It's, it's in multiple steps. But first... I recommend that according to what they're trying to benchmark on, that they seek out the professional industry body that regulates those benchmarks like ACES International, um, you know, DRI for business continuity, others as well. Seek out those bodies of knowledge first. Look at the industry standard, the ANSI standard, the DRI standard, et cetera, for whatever they're trying to benchmark and go from there as to what the industry standard is, what the legal defensibility standard is for risk and liability, et cetera. Um, and then go to individuals um, who are in same or similar positions. And what's important in, in, this, in this way is if you work for a really small company, you don't want to go to a director at a large Fortune 500 company and, and say, hey, what are you guys using? Because their requirements and their needs are going to be completely different from yours. You want to try to benchmark with people and companies that are similar in scope to what you're doing, because it's likely that their budgets and their requirements are going to be same or similar along the lines of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, and then third, you talked about proprietary information. You know, there's a lot of times where people contact me and they're like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about so-and-so, but this is proprietary. Well, that's simple. We sign an NDA. You know, the company sends an NDA to you, you send, the, you send them an NDA, depending on what the top of the conversation is. You do a mutual party NDA, 
And then you talk about the pain points and the problems that they're having and you offer constructive solutions, you know? So, um, again, I, I just recommend that people look at the industry standard. They make sure that their scope of requirements is similar to what they're benchmarking against. And if they need to share confidential or proprietary information, then enter into an NDA. It's a fantastic approach. Uh, I really like it. <laughs> um, that's 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 very elaborate thank you for sharing that uh, now uh, something extremely important when it comes to networking and it is the significance of giving back to the community so obviously not just it's not just about reaching out about a position or reaching out to somebody because you want to get information on best practices it is also about giving back to those who are new uh, to the field those are that are maybe holding uh, entry-level careers um, one example that relates back to uh, your point about just contacting people if you have questions. Uh, uh, last year, uh, last year I would say maybe around be right before the lockdowns occurred, uh, somebody reached out to me uh, out of the blue. I, I did not know this person. Uh, he said, "Hey, um, I'm working in just doing regular business stuff. I want to branch into this." Uh, corporate security sphere. I have this interview coming up with this financial institution. Uh, do you have 10 minutes? I, I'll book a, a Zoom meeting and we'll discuss. And I just, I've never been in, in, in this position. To, I've, I've been to, you know, X company before, but it was in a business capacity, not in a geopolitical or strategic intelligence capacity. So if you could shed some, some insights on how the industry works, et cetera, et cetera. So we ended up just having a wonderful conversation and I shared uh, best practices, uh, my experience um, and also how to do things uh, from a practical point of view. I also shared uh, some articles for him to read and I prepared him more or less for the interview. So uh, this person ended up getting hired by the financial, financial institution. So um, every now and then we, we do touch base. Uh, I, twice a year or so since, well, since last year. So I've talked to him, I believe three months ago or so, um, and he's doing great, but this is what I, I, I really, really like hearing that he actually landed that job. And that, uh, my 15 minutes or half an hour that I gave him allowed somebody to, to get that. So I, I really like giving back. And this is why also we had uh, the apprenticeship under Ghost to provide an opportunity to those that don't necessarily have the means to afford expensive training. Because let's face it, when you attend a, a higher education institution, they don't really prepare you for the real world. Uh, right. Ninety-five percent of the mm -hmm. training comes on the job, yeah. everywhere. So uh, right. that being theoretical said, versus practical, theoretical, conceptual, historical, practical is a different beast. But this is why I do it. It uh, I went through it, and I really uh, put a lot of emphasis on giving back to the community. So that being said. You give me your perspective of giving back because I see that you share jobs all the time. You uh, urge people to contact you. Have any questions about something? If you have a contact or if you can put in, uh, you know, a good word on their behalf. You know, I uh, I genuinely love interacting on LinkedIn. Um, it's a way to to constantly change people's lives with really minimal effort on our part. You know, um, when I transitioned out of law enforcement. Initially, I didn't have any help, but once I realized who to talk to, I had a ton of help. I had a ton of advice. I had people who 
check in with me every single week. Hey, how you doing? What applications are you in process for? You have an interview coming up. Do you want to do some interview prep? I mean, you look at your resume. Like I had a lot of people who really stepped in the gap for me and helped me and took time out of their day to add value to mine. And, you know, one of my key strengths as an individual and as a people manager is my ability to build relationships cross-functionally, to lead, develop, mentor, coach, train a team. Those are things I'm absolutely passionate about. And that lends itself very well to networking on LinkedIn. You know, um, I'm very blessed to be where I am in the position that I am. Um, and I've been laid off. I've been terminated. I've had periods of unemployment. So I've, I'm able to relate to a lot of the stuff that people go through, um, especially during the pandemic. I was laid off from, from my last employer during the pandemic, you know? And so being able to relate to people as they go through life and as they hit different crises and stuff like that, that means something. But being able to spend 10 or 15 minutes on the phone with them and say, hey, I understand where you're coming from. And this is what I recommend for you to get out of the hole. Or I understand that you don't want to be in law enforcement anymore. Here's some steps that you can take to get yourself in a better position. You know, like I wish to heck that someone had told me that, you know, prior to getting out or that these resources had been in place to where maybe I could have spared myself some heartache along the way, you know, but everything happens for a reason. And my biggest passion right now is paying it forward. You know, um, we all need help at one point or another in our lives. We all, we, we all need the help of others. We all need to depend on someone to help us out of the hole or help us find a new job. No, no man is an island. No one, no one ever does it on their own all the time, you know, and building a network and helping people and being a resource for them when they need it. You know, there's nothing better for me. You know, I don't, I don't expect anything in return, but just seeing the impact that you can have on one person's life or like changing their perspective or their context. That's all the, the reward I need right now. I know uh, of two people that have started emulating your way of uh, giving back to the community uh, through LinkedIn. So aside from, from that aspect, you have also inspired uh, some others to do, to do this, uh, which, which is great. You know, that, uh, that, that impression that you, you're, you're also inspiring people to uh, reach out, to give back and to change somebody else's life is absolutely amazing. But switching gears uh, to this topic now, obviously the pandemic has changed the way we work. Uh, and obviously for us, that, that has included working remotely. Probably not the favorite thing for, uh, for most people because it is a hard thing to get used to. But tell me, what was your first impression when you first had to go 100% remote? Um, well, hey, it was the first time I'd ever worked remote in my life. Even in my previous role during the pandemic, I was reporting into the office because I was a essential employee. So working remotely, you know, this is my first foray into it. And initially it was, it was nice because I could go outside. I could see my wife. I could see my daughter. I didn't have to commute into the office and spend an hour and a half in traffic every day. I could save money on gas and a whole host of other things. 
eat at home, save money, et cetera. But as we're coming up on almost a year and a half of remote work, you know, I am, I hate it to be perfectly honest. Um, not only am I totally done with virtual meetings, but as a extrovert and as a people person, I deeply miss the highly interactive and collaborative discussions you can have with other people in the same room. You know, I miss whiteboarding with others on a, on a common problem. I miss, you know, interacting with people face to face and smiling and shaking hands and hugging and seeing body language and facial expressions. And um, I just think that we lose so much of our individual experiences and to some extent our productivity by being virtual. Also, I've, re I've recognized that at least in the beginning, I worked a lot more when I was virtual. You know, I really struggled with the separation between work and home. You know, um, like when I was working in the office, my drive into work every day was my preparation. I was like, okay, I got to get this done. I got to get this done. I was strategizing for the day. I was thinking about meetings I had coming up. And on the way home, I was decompressing. If I had a bad day, I was trying to turn my attitude around so I didn't negatively impact my wife. Or, you know, if I had something else happen, I was just decompressing, letting it roll off me. Working remotely, though, I walk out my bedroom door and there's my family. You know, so it just takes... It's, it's, a, it's a whole different mindset, you know, and the adjustment has, uh, has not been easy. It is trial and error. Uh, therefore, there is a big learning curve. Uh, and de obviously, depending on the role that you're holding and the industry and how demanding uh, uh, your job is, uh, it may be impossible. It, for example, if you're a manager at, a, at GSOC, uh, and I just have to operate 24 seven. Uh, man, it's, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how, how that's possible to be able to detach yourself from that job. And I do have uh, from when I used to work in, in, uh, in the media industry, um, one of my friends that's it's still, he's still there. He's the, the GSOC manager. Uh, at one point he was about to burn out because it, it was just too much to handle. And you know, the, the world, Yes, we, we're experiencing a pandemic, but the world doesn't stop turning. Uh, you know, bombs do go off and they're still reporting to be done. And, you know, you still right. need to deal with crisis management and uh, the, ma the managerial position is still 24-7. You need to answer calls. And if you're working from home, that's just extremely stressful. Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's very tricky, but I don't know if you have anything to say, but what about the positive aspects about working from home? Well, aside, I think aside from, yeah. you know, being with the family. And... Sure. Um, besides being with the family, I, I really can't think of a whole <laughs> lot of positive aspects that I enjoy. Um, you know, it's uh, saving money, you know, would be a positive aspect. And, uh, you know, being much more flexible with dress code and and things of that nature. But overall, for me, at least, it's a uh, it's a negative. And I know people who absolutely love it. You know, if they could work remotely until they die, that there would be nothing better for that. But everyone's different. Everyone has different expectations and everyone thrives in different environments, you know. So I really think that 
a lot of companies will move to a hybrid moving forward of where they allow their employees to work remotely, but also come into the office, you know, because companies have really realized the value of, of that model, but also of their employees working remotely. Exactly. But there is also that human element to it. You really cannot have um, uh, solid uh, groups or teams if you don't really interact face to face. Um, I know, for example, that I am closer to to the team that I used to see at the office versus the teams that I, I engage with that are overseas that I've probably seen them once in my lifetime when people were allowed to travel. Um, but I only saw them for about three days. Uh, so there, there, there wasn't that day-to-day, face-to-face engagement. Uh, most of the time, all the time, it was just a phone call, which is very impersonal. Uh, so, but it is harder to have uh, proper relationships and proper uh, team dynamics that way. It's not impossible. It is just more challenging. <laughs> um, but uh, do you have any tips regarding work-life balance? For me, for example, um, I, uh, I do tend to take breaks. Like if, if it's noon, if it's 12 o'clock, I, I put it on my calendar unless if I have a, a, an important meeting, of course, I don't do that. But normally I have it on my calendar that, you know, I'm out of the office and I just, you know, I, I do whatever, you know, I, I sure. m- make lunch or whatever, I, I work out, I take the dogs out. But I, I do have these things. And, you know, if, if, I wor- if I start working at six in the morning, sometimes, uh, then I leave uh, uh, at 2 p.m. Uh, so I do tend to respect that eight hour um, uh, length of time. Uh, but sometimes, obviously, it's not possible depending on uh, assignments and all. But what yeah, tips I just, do you have? My recommendation is just to structure your day. You know, um, most people don't have anything overlapping their lunch for a variety of reasons. So, I tend to block out that that hour every single day yeah. on my calendar for lunch, for bathroom, for whatever. But also, you know, being located here in Austin, most of my coworkers are on the West Coast, you know, or overseas in EMEA or APAC or something like that. And so I have to be cognizant of the meetings that we have that may stretch into the evening or the early morning hours to um, to accommodate their t- the, the, the different time zones, you know, so if I know, if, so I look at my schedule a week in advance and I automatically say, okay, I'm going to have a late day that day. So I'm going to take out part of my morning and I'm going to spend that with family, or I'm going to spend that doing chores around the house or stuff like that. I try to give the company at least eight hours every day. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. That's one of the benefits of being salaried, but, um, you definitely have to have structure because you can't just sit in front of the computer for eight hours straight. You know, you have to get out, take a walk, you know, spend time with your family, you know, go to the store, you know, do whatever, just, you have to separate somehow and give your, your mind and your body a break. That's very true. But I want to, I want to hear from, uh, from Rafa because he also works from home 24 seven. So Rafa, what, what, is, what is your experience? Do you, do you encounter uh, any difficulties adapting to it? Um, uh, and yeah, what, anything positive? Well, positive, of, of course, you have the possibility to stay with your family and try to 
to to find a little bit more, more frequently with your with your lower one. But uh, probably the most complicated um, issue when you are work, working from home is that you don't uh, can separate uh, your your professional life and your normal life. You mix it and you you wake up and you start working and you don't have the the time to to have a breakfast and normal breakfast like usually you do before the pandemic but right now you have to stay at home uh, dealing with your your issues your professional issues from uh, 7 a.m to 11 p.m probably and you don't have enough time to do other other things uh, probably when i i was working in in the office probably i spent more time in the traffic or when you are living in mexico city you spend like, yeah, like, yes. a, like a four four hours per day in the traffic so it's, it's something that, that that when you are working at home is of course is better but but you don't have time for 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 workout probably to to do a course or training course or language course or something like that you don't have that time and you have to stay at home because um because you have a lot of job because you, uh, because you cannot separate right now the the professional life and the normal life and that's reflected even in your body yeah <laughs> I, I, I i got like like it I don't know in pounds, but I know in kilograms, I, I got like eight kilograms in this pandemic in, in the last year. So this is terrible. I am suffering yeah. in, my, in my health, in my body. Yeah, and, and that's the reason I, I, I want to come back to the normal life. But uh, everything changed uh, after this pandemic. And as Eric said, uh, many companies will move to an, a hybrid mood on a, a hybrid way to job and probably most of the, the big companies or at least the big tech companies will move into this situation and we have to adapt that and probably this is the, the most um, important thing that I get from the pandemic that is the capacity to to adapt to a, a new situation the resilience that many people is experimenting and this is something that will give you some skills to do your professional life and you get it from your normal life probably this is the most important thing that i i, I get for this for this period that is very true so it's no longer one of those uh bullet points on your cv or your resume saying flexible individual now everybody <laughs> has you know i am a resilient <laughs> human <laughs> i mean that that now applies that to everybody um all right and uh, one last one last thing eric uh do you have any advice to those uh that are about to enter the workforce those that are interested in joining the private sector and uh you know, they've, they've had some great insights from, from this conversation today about any last words of advice to them. Um, what I would say is, is just don't be afraid to reach out and establish relationships, even with people that you don't know. The job market right now in the US and even around the world is very intense. And there are far more applicants than, than there are for jobs, especially in the intelligence space, in the private sector. And... <clears throat> 
networking and building relationships is what's going to get you in the door. You know, um, absent those people who have very, very unique skill sets or speak very, very unique languages, something that separates them from the rest of the pack, building relationships, establishing those networks and, you know, getting your name out there and asking questions to things you don't understand. All of that is, um, is beneficial to landing that job. You know, um, we all need help getting somewhere. And that, that first jump from college to your first entry level job is huge. You know, um, it sets you up for the rest of your career. And um, I just really encourage everyone who's listening to this and who is entering the workforce for the first time, whether you're an introvert, whether you're an extrovert, whether, whether you communicate in a different way or not at all, don't be afraid to reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out to me or Raphael or Ephraim or anyone else who follows this, this podcast um, because we are here to help. We are here to facilitate your success. And we want you to succeed because you're the next generation. Those are great words. Uh, thank you very much, Eric, for taking the time tonight. Uh, I really appreciate everything that you do for the community. You're definitely a great role model, not just to the ones starting, but those that want to uh, continue expanding the network. So thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Ephraim. And to the audience, thank you very much for tuning in today for this amazing conversation with Eric. I'm your host, Efren Torres, speaking to you from New York City. We'll talk soon. End of briefing.